I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And this is Leading Professional People. This is the podcast where we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And in this episode, we're going to be exploring what exactly gives rise to the distinctive partnership culture, how it's different from leading in a corporate environment. And to help us with this, we've got a fantastic guest that you'll be hearing from later, Sir Ian Davis, former global managing partner of McKinsey, and he now has a number of non-executive roles in the corporate sector, including chairman of Rolls-Royce. No one could be better placed to comment on this topic. You know, David, before I became an academic, I was a strategy consultant. Very grand. And the day I joined the firm, straight from London Business School as a freshly minted MBA, the managing partner got us all together and announced that they'd merged with another firm and the partnership was now disbanded. And I watched over the next two years as everything that had attracted me to the firm was gradually destroyed. The partners basically lost their mojo. They lost their sense of pride and connection And there was a real sense of grief within the firm. We actually held a wake. It was a black tie event at Claridge's, because, yes, you're right, we were quite grand. Um, We came together to mourn the loss of the partnership. And this wasn't just for the partners, but for all the consultants, because we were all losing the chance to become partners. Ah, okay. Now we're getting to it. Yeah. We knew we had something quite powerful and that had been taken away from us even though we couldn't quite explain what it was. So ever since then, I've been fascinated by partnerships and how they differ from corporations. And I'm really intrigued by this extraordinary sense of attachment and commitment to the partnership. This is the sort of commitment that corporations would pay a huge amount of money to buy if they could. But in the process of buying a partnership, they risk destroying it. Right. Okay. So, but presumably here, the partners were not so unhappy because they walked away with a bag full of cash. Well, money isn't everything, David. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting that they lost their mojo. Why was that? I guess because they were no longer working for themselves. They were working for a faceless corporation. They were working for the shareholders. And I can see that because I think it's fundamental to partnership that you have this alignment of injury this is why it's such an interesting concept and why it tends to work so well to get together groups of highly intelligent professional people to work together for a common purpose because you've got complete alignment of interests everyone in the partnership is aligned they're typically all paid on more or less the same basis And you don't have this kind of divide that you often get in the corporate world between the interests of the management and the interest of the shareholders, which can often be quite divergent. In a partnership, everyone goes up and down in the lift together. You're actually the last person in the world I'd expect to quote the principal agent problem to me. I mean, you're actually framing all this in economic terms. I'd frame it in identity terms. This is about partnerships are about our longing to belong to something bigger than ourselves. Uh, I had a a client once explain it to me as it's the sense of being part of a very, very special club. And and with that, the the feeling it gives you that you can sort of take on the world. That's true. But I think these two things are connected. It's hard to create that feeling, I think, without the economic alignment. 
you know, if people are pursuing their own economic interests in a way that are not aligned with each other, I think it's difficult to create that sense of attachment. But I do agree that the essence of a strong partnership is this sense of wanting your fellow partners to succeed. After all, in most partnerships, these are people you've spent your whole professional career often, or certainly a large part of your professional career working with. And you're in the trenches with each other on a daily basis. I think it's hard to understand for outsiders the sense of mutual respect, mutual responsibility, that sense of intimacy between you know, professionally um, and and also that sense of common understanding of what we're all trying to achieve. It's very difficult to explain that if you've not experienced it. Now, you're talking about this as though this is inherent within the concept of partnership. But what I found through my research is that a lot of professional organisations that are not partnerships still have everything that you've just described. And they're corporates, but they're corporates that deliberately try to mimic partnerships. So what I've done through my research is I've tried to distill the essence of what they are doing, what partnerships and corporates that mimic partnerships are actually doing to create this sense that you've been speaking about. And I've identified three separate factors that are quite independent from the legal form. And the first one comes down to how you socialise people into the culture. And obviously, in a firm like Alan Novery, you're generally hiring people straight from university and you put a huge amount of thought into how you train someone up to become an Alan and Overy lawyer and ultimately partner. But it doesn't just have to happen like that. It can happen with firms, I've found, that rely primarily on lateral hires. But there, it's very much a question of the process of screening people at interview, knowing what it is you're looking for in interview, and how you encourage and penalise um, behaviour that is not kind of culturally congruent. So all of that socialisation is the first element. Yes, uh, I completely agree with that. Um, and I think that there's the best firms, I think, put for you, you talk about lateral hires, put a tremendous amount of time and resource into making sure they're hiring the right people in the first place and then introducing them into the culture in a way that's more likely for them to take as part of that culture than to be rejected is critical. So the second thing is about how you actually go about managing senior professionals. So obviously about how you reward them, but also how you develop them and how you sanction bad behaviour. And a lot of particularly um, law firms have traditionally focused on lockstep remuneration and they think that kind of is the answer and solves everything. But actually I found this very intense partnership culture thriving in environments which have a very strong element of performance-related pay because it's kind of supported by all these other quite stringent management controls. How do you go about evaluating someone's performance? How do you decide what performance to privilege? If Is, is it just about the fees they earn or is it also about their behaviours? Um, what do you do when someone's behaving badly? How do you send those kinds of signals? Yeah. Again, strong partnerships are very good at 
um, reinforcing, if you like, the formal structures with the sense of informal peer pressure. So there's a sense of conversations that are going on all the time, which are passing on between partners, the expectations between those partners as to how they should behave, how they should perform, what's expected of them, all of those kinds of things. And the best partnerships, I think, develop that sense of peer pressure. So it's not just somebody at the top saying you must do this and you must do that. It's coming at you from all directions. Um, and that's very powerful. Which brings us on to the third element, which is about governance. You're talking about it's not just someone at the top, it's coming at you from all directions. So it's about how the how the senior professionals, and remember we're not just talking about partners, how the senior professionals manage each other, but it's also how they manage the senior leadership of the firm and how the senior leadership feel accountable to the senior professionals as a whole. So this relationship between the two, this this relationship between engagement and oversight and the both the formal structures that are in place and the informal understandings. And I quite often get invited in to conduct governance reviews of both the partnerships and of professional corporations. And the focus initially, people always sort of really are very focused on what's written down in in, in the agreement and we need to redraft the agreement. And that's obviously part of it. But unless you're actually also thinking about the informal understandings around how power flows, how power is constrained, how you actually send signals to your senior professionals and how you socialise everybody into a collective understanding of culture, really, in a sense, it doesn't matter too much what you write down on the partnership agreement. Um, You need to think about all of these things together to achieve this kind of ethos that, that we were talking about at the beginning, which is so so powerful and so energising. Yes, I find that it's often a revelation to people when they realise that there's both a formal power structure and an informal power structure in any professional firm. And normally the informal power structure is as important, if not more important, than the formal uh, power structure. But people often think that partnership and how partnerships work is is about the legal form. It's about how it's legally different from a corporate structure. But I think it's much, much more nuanced from that. And I'd like to explore that more with Sir Ian Davis when we speak to him. He used to be global managing partner at McKinsey. And he's also worked extensively in the corporate sector. Most recently, he's chairman of Rolls-Royce. In fact, he's uh, director and chair of several major blue tip companies. So he's got this unique perspective of having led one of the most famous partnerships in the world. Um, And he's also led some of the biggest corporates in the world. Yeah, I just want to pick you up on something there, because although Sir Ian Davis's title was managing partner, and he was elected to that role by the partners of McKinsey, McKinsey isn't actually a partnership and hasn't been for many decades. It's a privately held corporation that is that tries very, very hard to mimic a partnership and in the process has come to be seen as a kind of a flagship for partnership culture, but it isn't a partnership. You're right. It's not technically a partnership, which perhaps proves the point I was making. But when you speak to McKinsey partners, once they realise you're from a law firm, they are very quick to tell you that McKinsey was founded on the principles of a law firm because they, in those days, management consultants weren't considered a profession and they wanted to follow the principles of profession and become a profession. And I think they've stuck to that to this day. 
So Ian, welcome and thank you so much for giving up your time. I think it's a good place to start is you've had an extraordinary number of leadership positions and we, we simply haven't got time in the podcast to list them all. Which are the ones that you think are most important? What what are the three leadership positions you would you would bring to the fore in this in when you were introducing yourself to someone? Yeah, well, most of my career, as you know, was at uh, McKinsey, and uh, that's where I spent 30 years, probably the most uh, formative years of my life. And probably there, I'm clearly being the managing partner worldwide was the most testing and the most stretching in some ways. But I wouldn't necessarily say it was the most influential leadership position because in a sense, at that point, I was using the leadership. I would actually say when I was a young partner at McKinsey and I was responsible for a a practice area new to me, that was when I really formed my leadership experience. And I was very lucky to have a couple of exceptionally good mentors as well. And I do think, you know, people tend to confuse hierarchical rank and leadership, but leadership can be, is very contextual. So a lieutenant in charge of platoon in the army, I think is at least as much a leader as a general. It's a different type of leadership. So I would say the equivalent of me being a lieutenant was probably when I was a young partner leading a practice, learning the ropes and learning leadership from other people as well. That's intriguing because as you've become more and more important and more and more, um, you know, gone higher and higher up the hierarchy of organisations, in a sense, you've had more and more authority and power and perhaps less need to actually use those kind of influencing and leadership skills because you've been able to rely more upon your innate authority. Have you felt that starting to shift? It it does in a sense, particularly if you work in a corporate environment. I mean, you're right, you know, authority, power and leadership, you know, they're related but very, very uh, different. So if you use power in a partnership, you would fail miserably um, because people wouldn't accept power. But if you don't use any power in a corporate or in a structure like a a hospital or an army, then you would fail also. So you know, one of the arts of leadership is to pick what sort of style, what sort of approach is the most effective. Um, just because you're in a leadership role doesn't mean that you're a leader. I've seen lots of leaders who are not leaders at all and lots of people who are not categorised as leaders are real leaders. And in the end, as people rightly say, the test of leadership is the followership. And so that's that's the way you really know. So how you lead power, authority, influence, credibility, trust, I think is very, very contextual. And when we come and talk about it in a professional service firm, it's very particular uh, to that in that world as well. How hard did you find that transition then from the professional services world type of leadership, which is more consensual, perhaps to the corporate world? Is that difference as great as people tend to think it is? Well, I think it is quite a, it's a big difference. We're going from, well, a partnership or privately owned. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in a partnership, you know, being privately owned is sometimes at least as much important as being a partnership, going to the corporate world. I think it's important to stress that my roles in the corporate world have been non-executive. Um, uh, I, I often wonder how effective I'd be as a, an executive in the corporate world, having spent 30 years in a partnership structure. So if you're a non-executive chairman or a non-executive director, some of the leadership skills that you would use are actually quite akin to being in a partnership because you don't have executive power. You have a lot of authority, particularly as a chairman, you have a lot of authority. But if that becomes power, 
by definition, you're becoming executive and then you get blurrings of responsibilities. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. I mean, there's often a criticism of professional services firms that leadership is too insular because it always comes from within, effectively, whereas in the corporate world, it typically, it, it may, it may not uh, come from uh, uh, within. Is that a fair criticism uh, or, or it actually is it almost impossible for somebody from outside for the reasons you give, the familiarity and the importance of the relationships? I, I think it's a fair comment. It can be a criticism but you know that you know that weakness is also the strength of a lot of it's like any profession they are sort of closed shops i don't mean that in a economic or a union sense but they are professions are exclusive well they, they are a closed shop in an economic in, in an economic well. and uh, you can debate whether consulting is a real profession because it doesn't have um, qualifications but if you're a doctor uh, or a lawyer or an accountant and or people who consider themselves professional which may not have a profession so journalists for example may well consider themselves rightly as being professional so I think there's a sort of exclusivity about that and it's quite important to maintain that in a funny way so if people can just come in and out and external you can diminish that on the other hand, if you become inward looking and you become self-obsessed, we all know that's a very, very dangerous uh, uh, a place to be. So one of the challenges, if you're in a leadership or managerial position in a professional, you get that balance between challenge, which doesn't need to be external. It can be internal. In McKinsey's case, the way that you know we dealt with that was we did ha actually have quite a lot of external people. You're also dealing with clients all the time. And you get a lot of feedback solicited or unsolicited from them. If you're listening and if you're good, I always used to ask the clients, what do you think? What do you like? What do you not like? What are you seeing from other professional service firms? So the best people are looking for outside. And the other way to get challenge, I think, is generational. And this is something I think professional service firms perhaps aren't as good as they could could be, um, is you know, one of the best challenges are actually younger generations who in the end are going to be replacing you anyway and so they've got a bigger stake on you doing well or screwing up than anyone actually and your colleagues can live with you making a big mistake but if you make a big mistake as managing partner the people who really feel it are 10 years down the line so I think there are mechanisms for getting external challenge and perspective into a firm without bringing in people from the outside and generally my observation not from McKinsey particularly but watching other when they try and bring people from the outside they either you get organ rejection quite quickly or the outsider just said you're hopeless you just haven't got a clue you've not no idea what it's like in the real world and they're missing the point as well you know professional service firm is just a, a real world as a corporate or as a private business or as an individual entrepreneurial business it's just a different real world can I pick up on that? Because uh, that's an interesting lead into something I wanted to explore with you. The idea of what happens as partnerships grow. I wonder how big a partnership can grow and still retain the good qualities of a partnership. And is there a risk that it ends up actually embracing too many of the bad qualities of a corporate? Um, again, going back to my own experience at McKinsey, I, every year... People said we're getting too big, we can't keep the partnership culture, we shouldn't, and therefore we shouldn't grow. A lot of people said, therefore we should not grow. No corporate would ever say that. So people felt so strongly about partnership that they would say we should not grow. And others saying, no, we need to learn how to keep a partnership culture while growing, because if we don't grow, the young people will leave, will become ossified. And that, that I think, is if you're not having a debate, if you're a partnership all the time, 
then you're not challenging yourself. So to me, that's a, as long as you're debating that seriously, not just routinely, actually, I think you've got a good chance of growing um, uh, uh, and keeping a partnership up to a point. Uh, I think there is a, I think there is a critical mass that where you can come so large or so influential that even if you've got that, that society won't let you self-govern. Because in, in essence of partnership is self-governance. The partners run the firm for themselves, the firm. But, you know, if you're a, a Price Waterhouse or KPMG or a Freshfields or an Allen Overy, people say that's not good enough. You guys are really big and important. We want scrutiny. Coming back to the point of size, yeah, size does make a difference. It is possible. I mean, I think my old firm has been pretty good at keeping a partnership culture. And it's, I mean, there are twice as many partners now as there were consultants when I joined. I'm absolutely fascinated by the fact that you said McKin- they were debating McKinsey about whether you should grow. Because I, I just, we, we had debates like that in my old firm. I thought that was just lawyers. No, no, it's not. No, it's, it, and there are so many people who are so committed to the partnership culture. If you like it, and not everyone does at all. It is a very, very attractive, and David and I, I'm sure we're junkies on it. You can't, and I miss it. I miss it hugely now. I mean, you just can't replicate that feeling of uh, togetherness. You, you see it when people have been on a ship together or in a regiment, you can, or in a hospital. You can, you can just tell they, they, they've been through. I've got a friend of mine who's Band a of brothers. And sisters. You always complain about the NHS, but when it comes to the hospital, Absolutely. You know, so uh, and the same with the media organization, too. So I think it is possible to make that bridge. I think so. Si- if you manage it carefully, and I think the key is the pace of growth, not the actual growth. So if you have an apprenticeship culture, you inculcate your new people into the values of the firm and you're not careful not to grow or decline too quickly. Uh, I think you can actually um, uh, maintain a, a part and be big. You've talked about partnership culture a few times, and you started off talking about that in the context of togetherness. But if we sort of really boiled it down to one word, it sounds like for you it's trust. Can you trust your fellow partners? What else do you mean when you talk about a partnership culture? To me, the ultimate test of partnership is when you want your colleagues to do as well as you do. Mm. Uh, and uh, you see, you see the collective in now. Everybody wants themselves to do well, and I was noted from anybody as you want to be elected a partner, you want to do well, you want to be rated. But I'm not saying that. But fundamentally, you know, when the firm does well, you, you feel really good about it, and when they're not, you actually don't feel that great about it. And you know, a good partnership culture, they don't go and say, "What the hell's happening with the litigation practice?" or "Why is the Latin American practice?" They may say it, but they don't say it in a way of what are you doing about it? It's sort of what are we going to uh, do about it? And and so to me, that's what I mean. It's this collective accountability, collective uh, uh, identity. And I would also add another characteristic is a sense of social social adhesion and belonging. You know, most strong partnerships. um, I'll give you a good water test. Most strong partnerships, when you talk to people who left the firm 15 years ago, they talk about we. Mm, I find myself doing that all the time. (laughs) And it's that social identity and social adhesion. So to me, there are characteristics of partnership culture, which may or may not be a partnership. You can have a, I've seen one or two corporates actually had really quite strong partnership cultures and some family businesses. I'm not hung up on family businesses. Most family businesses are disasters and don't do very well. So it's not a good model, but some well-run, they have a, you can call it a family and partnership and family cultures 
caricature, not that dissimilar in many ways. We had an expression in my old firm, which is you can take the person out of the firm, but you can't take the firm out of the person. Well, that's another way of putting it. But you, if you've been in one, you just sort of yes. know. And uh, any, any group that has a strong sense of identity, I, I think, has that. And the question then is, as a leader in a partnership, how do you influence that if you want to? Because there's a price to be paid for it. So performance is... I mean, if you're in a partnership, you're not in a opti- uh, performance-optimizing by definition, in the short run, in the short run, you're not in it because you're tolerant. You, you know, if you have a culture, you have to have an element of tolerance and forgiveness sometimes. There are certain things you shouldn't forgive, but generally speaking, most good partnership cultures have a, a forgiving and an encouragement because it doesn't work otherwise. Trust doesn't uh, uh, work on that. But So you are sub-optimizing, you are tolerating sub-performance for a bit, um, in my view, it shouldn't be for too long, but you are doing it for a bit. So there's a trade-off to be made. And I think one of the other challenges on partnerships is your performance aspirations. If you're very performance-driven with a two- to three-year time frame, I don't think a partnership culture will survive. If you're soft on performance because you're a partnership culture for a long time, you won't survive either. So it's a balance. And I think one of the leadership tricks in a, a well-run partnership is getting a balance between performance and partnership and then what are your mechanisms for doing that when you don't have or if you do you don't use power Mm. and that's when you get into appointments signaling Um, you know how do you emphasize knowledge or uh, innovation in a established partnership well that to me is the way i think about is what levers you're going to pull i believe appointments is really really important so for example if you believe appointments is key and you appoint to key positions the client animals whose numbers are fantastic you know notorious for driving teams hard to produce better revenues you send a signal so to me the question is as a leader or a leadership in a partnership what levers can you have to create the what i call the subcultures within the overall culture the second thing I, I would emphasize, which I think some firms do well, but most uh, don't, is what I call generational leadership. I, I do absolutely and passionately believe that involving next generations in decision making in a real way is a hugely powerful driver of innovation, but also providing continuity uh, of the values. Again, using me as an example, because <laughs> I remember... You know, I, I knew I'd been identified as somebody, you know, who might do something when I was in my 30s. So I was told that was nice to know. But it wasn't just, well done, you're good, we think you're going good. I knew not because people told me, but because of what I was asked to do. So I was involved in two firm task forces where four of the uh, eight, uh, eight, there were 10 on the team. Um, there were two 30 year olds, two 40 year olds and five prominent firm leaders. And we just worked together. You were in the room with them. You did that. You worked till midnight together to do that. And that was very, very usual. Now, that to me was, hey, it was incredible learning. But they're saying, and I can actually promise you that my view, you know, I was, there was no, you wouldn't have known other than through age what the hierarchy was. So that's one technique. I think it's a very powerful technique. It's, it's something I've noticed with some firms, though, that they're re- quite reluctant to involve. Or they, they put the token high flower yeah. on, but then don't. The key is not just being assigned to it, but 
What would you think? How would you? I remember, how would your generation react to this? My view is that specialism is the biggest problem. This is where leadership development uh, uh, can come in, being brave and maybe not getting people so specialized so early that they can't change. And this is where I think senior partnership groups have a point. They have to intervene. If you don't intervene and you just let people rise, I think you're putting future generations of leadership at risk and uh, anybody who's been involved in a leadership role in a professional service firm is that knowing when to intervene with people who are fiercely self-governing, autonomous, expect to be, you want them to be, but on the other hand, can't be anarchic. There's a difference between autonomy and anarchy. Uh, and knowing that difference, uh, to me, is an exquisitely important judgment. Which and that difference make. is going to vary for each individual. Each individual, each practice, each, each, each firm, each, each history, each history, yeah. each yeah. history. Um, and I, I think you put your finger on it. It's knowing each partner well enough or knowing a person who knows the partners. So yeah, when, I, when, I, when, when I was a managing partner, 1,400 partners. I actually, I was, I was probably the last managing partner at McKinsey who knew all the partners by name. But I didn't know them as people. But I, I don't think there was anywhere where I didn't know someone well enough to know that they knew. So you've got to find a way of knowing about the people. I would say it's probably the number one, more than about the practice, even more than about the clients, knowing about the people's motivations, attitude to risks, um, likelihood of doing something stupid. You know, you, you know all the, the warning signs and the plus signs. It always comes back to people. I mean, that's why... Yeah, that's true in corporates are, as well, by the way. It's not just... It's a, yeah, it's, but it is, and it's how you know them. Thank you, Ian. Yes, thank you, Sir Ian Davis. Some really valuable thoughts there for our audience. So, David, what surprised you? What did you find particularly interesting about that? The point that um, came to me initially, I think, that the most important point was the point he made that you can keep partnership culture while you grow, that you can be big and still maintain that partnership culture, because that's a debate I've had many times over the years, and I think he's right about that. But there are still many firms you'll find who will, and many partners, actually, who will dispute that. Yeah, sometimes people ask me, you know, what's the... Uh biggest you can grow and still remain a partnership and the feel of a partnership and it's there's never a simple answer like that you can start small and never feel like a partnership at all i don't think there's any limit to be honest uh, i think it's a matter of structure and culture and systems and combination of all those things and i think even if you're sitting within a big corporate structure you can still create the partnership environment in sort of small microcosms around the firm so it's i don't think it's an either or decision but looking again to those those three elements i laid out at the beginning the culture the performance management systems and the governance structures all of these need to be understood in how in terms of how they fit together um, cuz i think another thing that i found intriguing was this idea of tolerating underperformance but he said tolerating underperformance up to a point and this question of up to what point yes and i completely agree with him on that because i find that most partnerships really struggle with this um they do tolerate underperformance and they really struggle to get the balance right between tolerating a degree of underperformance to maintain the culture and the collegiality but not tolerating it so much that it drags down the entire uh, future and performance of the firm. Yeah, underperformance, but for how long? I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. But, you know, after a while, 
does become very, very heavy. It does, yeah. I think it's probably more than a year, but it's less than three years. Um, I think another interesting point he made was talking about the difference between encouraging partner autonomy, but saying, but it's not anarchy. You know, autonomy, but not anarchy. Again, one of those balanced elements, understanding you need to allow people a degree of freedom and latitude, but only because you've kind of manage them so effectively up until that point that you can trust them not to do something really stupid. <laughs> I really like this phrase. I thought it was a great soundbite, autonomy versus anarchy. And he described it as an exquisite judgment of uh, how to manage a firm, you know, to give people that sense that they can run their own show, that they can look after their clients in the way they think best, but at the same time, not have everyone going off in all different directions and the whole firm collapsing under the weight of, of anarchy, as he would put it. I think that idea of exquisite judgment came through quite strongly in quite a few of the things that Sarian was saying. There was this, this sense of you know, this subtle, subtle, nuanced, not entirely intuitive understanding of, of when to push, when to pull, when to step forward, when to stand back. Yes. One of the things that the other things that he points he made was that the importance of signals. I, I really like that point. I think he's right on that, is that you can underestimate, I think, when you're in a leadership position, how people look at what you do rather than purely what you say. And he understood that, I think, implicitly by saying that the people you appoint to particular roles, are you appointing somebody who's a really big fee earner and thereby sending the signal, you need to be a really big fee earner to have any role in this firm? It was the example he gave. I thought that was a really key point. I was interested when he said that running a partnership was a lot like being a non-executive chairman in terms of his experience of being in a corporate, because in that role, you, you need to understand really clearly how to use your influence to persuade people rather than sort of coming in like a battering ram. And I thought it was intriguing, this idea that in both of these roles, whether it's as a non-exec in a corporate or as a senior partner in a partnership, all the time it's about influencing, persuading, because in both cases, ultimately, you, you, you may have sort of power in the kind of sense of controlling the nuclear button, but you really, that's a button you never want to actually have to push. Yes. And, and most of your power, I think, if you're going to be effective, is exercised in those more informal ways. Because once you get to the point where you're having to exercise formal power, then you may be in danger of having lost your informal power and probably your days are numbered. Yeah. He talked about how you need to have a range of mechanisms that you can draw on. And particularly this idea of challenge, I thought was intriguing, both in the context of partnership and non-exec, because I was trying to push him on the idea of why don't partnerships have external non-execs very often. And he kind of dealt with that by talking about how he, when he was at McKinsey, used to seek feedback continuously from clients. And of course, knowing what clients are thinking is also a really important source of power for a managing partner. Because when one of your partners says to you, oh, you know, uh, we can't do that because my clients won't stand for it, you need to be able to counter with, well, actually, I was just speaking to your client and they think it's a good idea. Yes. Did you ever do that, I No, absolutely, I did. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's so hard for um, non-professionals, so in the case of law firms, for example, people who are not lawyers, to come in and manage lawyers because they will constantly be told oh, no, the clients don't like this. The clients won't accept it. You see it with doctors. You see it with other uh, the patients. This is not good for patient care. It, you can't gainsay that if you're not a fellow professional. 
And I learned early on in my leadership career that if anyone ever said that to me, my first question was, okay, well, why don't we go and talk to the client then and uh, understand exactly what they're saying? At which point most people would go, oh, well, no, 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 maybe not now. Maybe that's not necessary. So there's a certain amount in that argument, which I think is to serve the purposes of that individual rather than being absolutely true. And he also talked about seeking challenge from the younger generation. So the idea that you can get challenge from your clients, you can get obviously get challenge from your fellow partners, whether you want it or not. But the younger generation as well is also being very important and and bringing in young high flyers in task forces and other leadership initiatives, not simply to develop them as leaders, which I think is the normal approach, but actually to bring them in to challenge the views of the most senior professionals. So all the time kind of refreshing the gene pool as well. His passion for involving younger generations in running the firm really came through to me and, and totally resonated with me. I think the most successful partnerships are very good at reaching down into the lower levels of the partnership, the more junior levels of the partnership, identifying people and giving them responsibility, as he described he was given when he was a junior partner, and helping to bring up that up-and-coming talent to who will be the future leaders of the firm. I think that's a really important part of a long-term strategy for a successful, sustainable strategy for a firm. And he talked about allowing debates to run and recognising that obviously there are going to be some conflicts endemic within a partnership or any professional firm, and that these may be issues that can never be resolved. I found that heartening. Yes, I can think of a number of issues like that where uh, it's better to let the debate rum rather than bring it to a conclusion and force a kind of divide uh, between the partnership that doesn't necessarily need to be forced at that stage. It's a very fine balance because there are some issues which, like wine, get better with age, but there are many issues that don't. So figuring out what kind of issue you can afford to let run and which you can't, I think, is one of the skills of leadership. And the issue of growth is an intriguing one. I've got a number of times I've been struck by you know clients who've approached me and said, look, we have this opportunity to grow, but we're worried about what we're going to lose in the process. And this idea that growth potentially destroys something quite precious I was intrigued that he, that they were discussing that even at McKinsey. I was fascinated by that because I've been in a number of those debates where you've got a group of partners, I used to call them the reductionists, who would argue at every opportunity that the firm should be smaller and that we shouldn't be growing, we should be shrinking uh, as a firm. I was fascinated to hear the exact same debate going on at McKinsey because you always think of uh, professional uh, management consultants as people who are very expansionist and, and ambitious. And so that in some ways was quite a relief to me because I always thought our focus on being on shrinking was because we were lawyers and we tended to think less positively about the world. Yeah, I'm interested though that you immediately equate expansionist with ambition. I think ambition can take many different forms. And and if you own the firm yourself, I think it's, you know, it's up to you to decide what ambition you want to pursue and for many people growth is isn't particularly energizing or exciting it's quite threatening and potentially quite dangerous well i would suggest that's a minority view because i think growth normally and momentum a sense of momentum in a partnership is really critical to the morale of the partnership but also longer term to create space for the next generation coming up 
And, and I think the best partnerships have this implicit sense of guardianship that the partners feel that they have to leave the partnership in a better place than they found it. It's not written down anywhere, but it's it's in their hearts. And I think you you heard that sentiment very much from uh, Sir Ian. Yeah, it's intriguing because, um, I mean, at one level, you're talking about leaving it in trust for the next generation. I think growth in these kinds of firms, though, is often done not because people are worried about the next generation, but more because they're worried about the competition. And it's almost a knee-jerk response to competitor acts. And I think growth that's done mindfully and thoughtfully with a view to the long term can be really constructive and positive. But when it's done on the lines of, oh, my God, you know, these other firms are growing, they've just bought this other firm, they've just moved into this area, we have to do it too. That's when I think you see professional firms making the kind of some really stupid mistakes because they just they have this great herd mentality but it can also be an economic massive economic mistake not to seize the opportunities that are there in front of you and for the firm to grow you can quickly become irrelevant if you don't grow and i think in business there's you know it's a bit like a shark you either you have to keep on going forward there's people think that somehow you can tread water and just stay where you are uh, that everything's fine the way it is let's not touch it i don't think that state actually exists in the business world or it can't exist for very long if you're not going forward you're probably going backwards yeah i think this is something we could debate for a long time david because i think you can go forward into a brick wall and, and destroy yourself as well it really comes back to the three things we were talking about at the start, the culture, the socialisation, the partner management systems and the governance. And I think if you keep those in mind all the time, this really can be the basis of, of any leader's agenda going forward in a professional organisation. I think if you get those right, the rest starts to follow. But if you become overly focused on growth, if you become overly focused on profitability, if you become so focused on culture that you forget about managing performance, etc., etc., if you go out of balance um, on any one of those dimensions, you don't really stand a chance of sustained success and you you will drive the firm into a brick wall. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, but the opposite is also true. Well, that's all for today's episode of Leading Professional People. Thank you for listening and thank you again to Siri and Davis for joining us today. And be sure to join us for the next episode by subscribing to the series and please rate and review the podcast. We look forward to you joining us again.